0: bandages came off Parker looked in the mirror at a stranger he nodded to the stranger and looked beyond at the reflection of Dr. Adler Parker had been at the sanitarium a little over four weeks now he had come in with a face the New York syndicate wanted to put a bullet in and now he was going back out with a face that meant nothing to anyone the face had cost him nearly 18,000 leaving him with about nine from the last job to tide him over until he got rolling again the syndicate trouble had been a bad time but that was over now that starts off the second parker book the man with the getaway face written by donald e westlake under the nom de guerre richard stark which we're going to be talking about this is a sequel episode to our episode on the hunter the first parker book uh to celebrate their uh their anniversary this m- novel was published in 1963 uh this is the pink smoke podcast with john Cribbs and chris Vunderberg. chris how you doing
1: uh, i'm doing well i'm excited to talk to you about uh about this uh parker book here uh, for people who don't know we have an episode on the hunter listen to that uh, the preamble is you and i are both big fans of donald Westlake, like big fans of the series my son is named uh parker after the after the parker series and uh and my
0: daughter's named handy mckay
1: your daughter is named honey bazoom honey bazooms <laughs> um your daughter's named salsa uh yeah, and uh, that's I don't think we need to go over all that again. But like, uh, let's uh, let's get into it. Let's yes. dive right into this. What, what do we need? We're, we'll do our uh, aperitif pairings, which is we select an artwork of some kind to for the audience to uh, to ingest before they read the book, and then we'll have our dessert pairings at the end to take us out of it. And I feel like I've given. This aperitif pairing before? I hope it wasn't on the Hunter. I've got, I have feel like <laughs> I'm constantly doing that. Um, but uh but yeah, what's your what's your aperitif pairing, John?
0: That's funny because my vote was not to have aperitif and dessert pairings with the Parker books, but I knew you were going to have one, so I do have one. Just about, um, like a kind of half ass one in my back Wait, pocket. Did we
1: not do them with the Hunter?
0: uh yeah. You kind of gave yours like through the discourse of talking to it. We oh. didn't do it officially. But uh, I would say if you enjoy this book, uh, or if you think you will enjoy this book, what you should watch beforehand is Le Doua Me Souf by Jean-Pierre Melville. Oh, yeah. A phenomenal crime film that has an armored car robbery in it. And uh, surprisingly came out three years after this novel dropped. It came out in 1966. And cool. it's not the kind of thing where I would think like Westlake saw it and was influenced by it or anything. But it is just funny because I guess because the Parker novels are so timeless to me even with their kind of like occasional references to period stuff. Uh, like the only way you can get to Staten Island from Jersey is on a ferry. Uh,
1: because I, the not narrow bridge hasn't been completed had yet. Had
0: not been completed yet, yeah. Uh, it still feel there still is a timelessness to it that makes it feel more modern. So unlike a black and white movie, which obviously, you know, you immediately think like, well, this is old. <laughs> just based on the yeah. fact that it's...
1: Well, Lino Ventura feels such a like 50s thing, even though that's not even true. You know, right. he, he does feel uh, like that. And I was uh, and I was thinking about pairing it with Touche Pyle Grisby, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for this other great uh, Lino Ventura film, his debut. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a good selection. What is uh, what is uh, what more do you have to say about pairing up second breath with this? I feel like after reading the Westlake, you know, I just feel so like lean and to the point. Like, I don't want any fat on anything on this episode, just like yeah, and yeah. straight through
0: it. Well, I'll just say that you know obviously people who know the parker books and their history and their adaptation history know that you know of course Godard ended up adapting the jugger into Made in USA and it was the first parker movie that ended up coming out the first book based uh, movie based on one of these books so it's interesting this weird relationship he has to french cinema in the 60s and I, who knows if melville ever heard of donald westlake or not you know it's uh it's funny to... Watch his films, which obviously you know deal with criminals who have like a uh, honor system, a code uh, for him. Like it's more important, you know, to like to not snitch is the big thing with uh, yeah. Lino Ventura's character in Second Breath. That's not uh, a big concern with Parker necessarily, but to have like this very specific system and uh, way of life that kind of d- defines the way you behave and kind of your lifestyle. Um, it's flashier. It's certainly flashier than Parker would ever be, but. Uh, there's definitely parallels, and you know there are two, like probably my two favorite <laughs> criminal series are the Melville films and the Parker books.
1: Yeah, and the Melville it feels like such an obvious Parker, like spiritual cousin to it. They yeah. just feel like Melville and Michael Mann. It feel like the two like, well, obviously, when you talk about the Parker books, it feels like with Melville and man, it's like, well, obviously, you know, even when you bring them up uh, about it, they're so uh, such a natural pairing. And you're right. It's funny to think about them that that wouldn't have occurred to me, even though even as I know, like Point Blank is around the same time as Second Breath. You know, they're not universes apart. Point Blank is the Lee Marvin movie. Uh, adapted from uh, *The Hunter*, the first novel in the series, and um, it is—it is a funny thing to think about in that way. There's also something so timeless about the Melville films themselves. They're so out of time, in, in the sense of they feel old-timey, even as they're ultra modern. They just feel out of out of place. They feel like from some kind of ancient history. That it it feels. It is. It's just a funny thing to think about, and it wouldn't have wouldn't have occurred to me until, till you brought it up. Oh, and mm-hmm. if you had made me work through it in my head, I would have been like, oh, well, obviously, that's very very strange, but uh, but obvious, you know, obviously a perfect pairing. Obviously, you know, uh, completely, um, obviously. Uh, Perfect, <laughs> you know. Obviously, the the way to go, and to a point where there's almost not much to be said about it. It's like the Parker books themselves. Like, if you haven't read them, get get reading them. If you haven't seen the Melville movies, get watching them. Start anywhere, and they're all they're all of a certain level of quality. They're all good. uh They're all interesting, and you know, just just get like you should obviously be doing this stuff. You should <laughs> obviously be watching <laughs> those movies and reading these books. Like uh, it's uh, without reservation they're recommendable so that's that's a a perfect pairing obviously
0: seems like a no-brainer what's your pairing
1: my pairing is armored car robbery the richard fleischer uh, heist movie um from 1950 it is about an armored car robbery as well and um it's the the it's about a, a woman who mucks it up and gets them involved in a double cross there's a Police officer who's nosing around at the wrong time. It's, um, it's this movie. I never know how, um, well known it is to noir and crime film aficionados. It's very well known. It's like, uh, one of those movies that's just like, um, just to aficionados, it's one of the greats, you know but I don't know how much it ex- escapes that sort of like ghetto of the knowledgeable in that way. it's It to me feels like an obvious influence on Westlake from a few different angles and an obvious influence on Melville as well, if we're going to meet, meet that and talk about that. But it's just, it's so um, Westlake. There's also, they, they rob Wrigley Field itself and in a later Parker book, There's a a robbery of a stadium and it's a um, a, a, a similar sort of plan each time in the books. I mean, not super similar, but similar setup, you know, and and you can just see the roots of a lot of the approach to character and narrative in this film. That's very Westlake. It's very no nonsense. It's about the minutia of it. Um, It's about the double crosses and who can you trust and which of your partners is going to turn on you and how people get in the way and screw things up, Should what should be a simple plan. Um, and it's less overheated than a lot of noirs. I don't even really think of it as a film noir. You know, to me, one of the defining characteristics of noir is regular people pull, drawn into a life of crime. So I tend not to think of police films and movies about criminals as noir, But it's and I think for that reason, it's less overheated and uh, expressionistic and sort of self-pitying and, you know, (laughs) ridiculous than a lot of noir. Um, It's very straightforward, you know, sort of uh, direct lean kind of film that you can see in Westlake, you know, Um, and it's and it's it's great. I think it'll get you into the right mindset for this book it'll sort of put you on the the right track and and you can read this book and sort of think about that film and think oh that's the perfect way to film it there's something again like we said about Westlake it's it's out of time in some way the books are both are are timeless and they're very um uh hard-boiled and and two-fisted and hard-knuckled and brutal at times um, but the way Dashell Hammett is, you know, it's it, even as much as it's like Lee Marvin 70s and, you know, peck and paw feel to the to the Westlake stuff, um, or not feel, but certainly um explicitness and brutality to it. Uh, it also has the Dashell Hammett sort of flavor as well, that that sort of level of of toughness and hard-boiledness to it. And and watching armored car robbery it's like yes if you were going to adapt this book you would want to do it like that movie you know
0: absolutely and it's funny you know what i said you know who knows if melville knew donald westlake at all i can guarantee melville and donald westlake knew armored car robbery you know yes,
1: yes. um no no question jose giovanni too i bet um john do you want to take us through the plot of the book This is the first we mentioned at the end of the Hunter episode that the Hunter is not like the other uh, Parker books is it's it's really its own thing, sort of tonally, narratively, spiritually, aesthetically. It's it's different than the rest of them. And it is a series that at times can be quite formulaic, not I don't mean that as an insult, but it is it is very formulaic in some ways for big stretches of it um this the hunter ends with like a sequence that feels like okay and here's what the parker novels are going to be like after this it ends with him doing a little heist and it and it almost reads like when you get um this is especially popular in ebooks where it has the first chapter of another novel by jim thompson right if you read the getaway it'll have the first of the first chapter of the grifters at the end of it it has that feel of like and here's the first chapter of man with the getaway face feel to it you know uh of that final sequence but this is like this is the one that's the first parker book in a lot of ways the first three books form a loose trilogy which we can get into but this is the one that feels like this is what the parker books are like this is the formula this is the way it is
0: yes so continuing from the hunter uh we know that the outfit is going to be out for parker they're gunning for parker because of the events of that book uh where he took his money back from them and killed several of their members so parker at the beginning of this decides to Change his face, have surgical, have surgery, uh, by being a uh, doctor Adler who specifies is uh, specializes in uh, changing the faces of criminals and people who want to disappear. Right, he has like three clients a year that he does this for at uh, his home base in Nebraska. And this is interesting because it's a mo- it's a book that kind of begins with like this almost science fiction kind of thing of him having his face changed, and okay. ends with this weird EC horror kind of moment. Uh, so it's one Parker book that I feel like branches into those different realms a little bit. You almost think about John Frankenheimer's seconds a little bit when you think about Parker becoming a new man and getting a whole new face that's good enough that people don't recognize him when he uh, goes up to his old associates and, and has dealings with them. But anyway, Parker gets yeah, his face this, changed. This
1: is a book we could mention at the beginning, too. He's finding, he's getting a handle on the character, too. The character from The Hunter is not what the character becomes and it's almost not sustainable in some way and this book is still i think it's like 85 percent of the way there 87 percent of the way there but there's still moments and tonal stuff that's like he's getting the handle on it we'll talk about that ending i completely forgotten that ending and it's like i had
0: completely forgotten about it until i read it again this time
1: it's like that is not something parker would do (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) And what yeah, it's fine too, because so I
0: always consider this hard. like one of my favorite ones because there's a lot of fun stuff in it. yeah, and I, it was just shocking that I could forgotten that anyway. But yeah, we'll get to it. um, so Parker has his face changed and leaves Dr. Adler's office uh, when uh, because he has he gets wind of a heist, right? His old uh, co-criminal skim has reached out to him about an armored car heist that he wants to pool with uh, this woman Uh, the the finger, though this woman who is a waitress at a diner where an armored car always stops for their, you know, lunch, bathroom break. And they came up with this idea that we're going to take the, the armored car from the diner. And they bring Parker into it. Parker kind of immediately sees that it's not being handled well. He's their
1: plan is faintly idiotic.
0: Yeah. That almost sucks. And the reason that they brought him in was, you know, that he can come up with a better angle. And he does. He simplifies certain things and he makes better choices. And brings on Handy McKay, his old uh, his old partner. So Parker uses his expertise to you know come up with a better plan. But there are two complications. One of them is Alma, the Finger, who Parker immediately sees is going to set them up for the double cross. And the other is that the doctor who performed the face uh, facial surgery on him has been murdered, and uh, he's uh, Stubbs. <laughs> his right hand man is out gunning for whoever did it, and so he shows up and he's. Uh, now threatening to expose Parker to the outfit uh, if if uh, he doesn't report back in a little bit of time, which is very inconvenient for Parker. So he has to deal with all these things. There are all these angles, all too much to watch, and he's constantly thinking maybe he should just drop the heist and move on. But he needs the money. He's he's kind of in a bind. He needs to because get his this cover heist got done.
1: his cover got blown in the first book in the Hunter. So all of the stash he had saved up over the years he can't get back. His wife who double crossed him also stole a bunch as well, and he's he's out of money. He's got his whatever eight thousand dollars left, whatever he has out. In the first book. So he needs this heist uh, to, as much as anybody does. As much as poor old stupid fucking skim and Handy McKay, who's out after this.
0: That's yeah, his last job. He swears. Um, but anyway, this, um, kind of right off the bat, what I want to talk about is the title. You know, we, you mentioned this being uh, still not quite the exact model of Parker that we're used to. The title is so much more poetic than the others. When I mean, you look around, yeah. the, the hunter, the outfit, the score, the mourner, the man with the getaway face is such an artistic kind of title and it's uh yeah. it's called the steel hit in the uk it was called oh new nu- or new look or makeover in france but uh it's it's funny to like think of this title being a much more kind of extravagant thing than the other ones but reading it this time i realized that thematically it works really well because it's not even so much about getaway like you know to like, like they're getting like has a double meaning of course like the criminal getaway but also there's this great theme running throughout this book about having to deal with things, you know, and having like obligations that complicate things. And the one that Parker kind of has to deal with himself is once they uh they corner Stubbs and they take his gun away, he has to stash him at their uh, their rendezvous, with the farm. He has to put them in put him in like the fruit cellar of this farm just to keep him out of the way. And he ends up like having to go and feed him and, and let him out for two hours. He calls it walking him. And Handy even says to him, uh, He's like your dog. You're treating him like your pet. And for me, reading it this time, it just felt like, Oh, yeah. And I have so many friends with dogs who, like, uh, I can't. How long is this movie we're going to go see? I can't. I, he's going to get upset if I'm gone too long, you know? Or people, people like.
1: Let uh, dogs rule their lives. Yeah. Are insane. <laughs> it's genuinely like I always think about the Bruce McCullough line America, where spelling doesn't count, but people's pets do. You know, like there is something in our life over the course of our lifetime. When I was a kid, you let your dog run around free outside, you know, maybe, you know, if the game warden was around, you know, you knew he was in the office after two so you can let the dog out for the rest of the day. And that's all you had to worry about it. And if your dog got cancer, it was like, that's so sad. We're going to put our dog down now. Now, <laughs> people like my dog has cancer. Let's get the thirty thousand dollar treatment for it, kind of thing, and build their lives around dogs. And it's <laughs> that to me seems nuts. Like dogs are great. I love dogs. They're also dogs, not people. And there's something
0: right. crazy about it. <laughs> um, I think Wes like you know, obviously he's known for his humor in his other books. A little bit of that bleeds into this. He clearly knows dog people, and like Parker yeah. having to deal with Stubbs <laughs> and treating him like a dog really feels like that. We have this very intricate operation that is detailed very finely in the book. Parker's got to go off and get these trucks, buy these trucks, and bring them over that so they're going to use them to uh, to uh, capture the the members of the armed armed car. And uh, he has to call, you know, Handy, be like, "You got to take care of Stubbs today." You got to go walk stubs, And everyone's annoyed that they have to deal with stubs. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But also, Skim has, you know, this girl who's got her hooks in him. And there's this little bit of, like, you know, uh, guys in relationships, you know, uh, they're just impossible to work with. And even Parker, when he's criticizing him in his mind, thinking, you know, uh, he's, like, letting this woman get to him, thinks about Lynn, his wife, who screwed him over, thinks about how even if she lived and they were still together he'd still be with her even though he knows that she would eventually screw him over again so anyway the title the man with the getaway face i, I think the double meaning is like these guys just got to get away <laughs> from these <laughs> domestic <laughs> obligations you know in order to get this thing running smoothly like you have to be free uh is is essential in like doing the things you need to do if you're going to be like a career criminal uh, and and certainly moving forward for a long stretch, Parker is going to be very much a lone wolf, you know, and not having to, yeah. to deal with these kind of things.
1: Yeah, no, this book definitely is one you read and like you go, eh, not you, because you're somebody who's been married forever. But it's like, why would anyone ever want to be in a relationship? This is something <laughs> I've said before. Zero, literally zero. Maybe Andrew Jones and his wife. Have I known anybody in a relationship where I'm like, I wish I had something like that. It's always like, oh, my God, (laughs) just like I look at every single person I know who's married or in a long term relationship and is like, who? this is awful. Who wants don't they see how awful their situation is? Who would want this ever? (laughs) And this book does a great job of it where like Parker and Handy walk in and Skims just got like a regular relationship. And it's just like, oh, who wants this? Um, but it also, you know, beyond that, uh, and I guarantee Westlake would disagree with what I've just said, because Westlake famously had, like, his wife, who was, like, the love of his life and heavily involved in stuff, and they just seemed adorable as hell. I got to meet her after a screening of Point Blank once and tell her my son was was named after the character, and it just, you know, they seemed cute as a button together well yeah does sure, I mean, not does not agree
0: this is looking way ahead but like when parker eventually does get a regular girlfriend later in the books yeah. i think that's a reflection of you know how happy he was with abby for sure yeah
1: and um but what's interesting about these books and what he seems to discover very quickly in this one or or engineer in this one that he goes throughout the rest of the books is Parker is not heroic. He does 0% things that can be characterized as heroic, right? So Mm. why as a reader are you on Parker's side except that he's situating us from his perspective? Sure, that's one of the tricks. But just how swiftly it takes three sentences for you to hate Alma and want to see her get hers and Parker to triumph over her. You know, what makes Parker... Um, admirable is, of course, that he's he's a professional and smart and focused and hates the bullshit, you know, which is always appealing in a character that's sort of, you know, I think that's a masculine ideal that a lot of men have for themselves of just like cutting through the bullshit, and not being skim, who are like, who's browbeaten and sort of weak and indecisive and arguing with his wife in the car after the event, you know, just like, how many times I've walked out of parties and just walked by columns of couples who have retreated to their cars to argue as I'm going home happily. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's just like, that's what you see and you hope you're not not skim arguing with Alma in the car. But, um, but just like, uh, also just Alma being a sort of a know-it-all who clearly doesn't have any respect for the people around her and is using people and is brusque and impertinent and impatient, you know, and just how quickly he makes her detestable, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's that's something he figures out how to do is he creates a sort of self-evident value system in an amoral world that you are on the side of Parker, even as he's violent and grotesque and sort of, Uh, irredeemably criminal and amoral and immoral, you know, um, that you still have this sort of alternate value system where trustworthy, knowledgeable, cool under pressure, you know, these things, you know, um, become the thing that are the value system that you can identify with and put you on his side. And he learns how to do that very quick. What's fascinating is all of, uh, not all of them, but the vast majority of the Parker books are structured the same way, where they have it's four sections, and the first two sections are the heist and the complications from it in some capacity. Sometimes the complications happen very early, sometimes they happen later on, right? But it's sort of, you have heist and complications, And the second section sort of ends on a cliffhanger, like a big like. And then things got really fucked up is like the end of the second section. The third section is a jump in time. It's a flashback focusing on a character who's not Parker. And it's normally the person who has mucked things up and led the cliffhanger in part two. It's sort of like, how did they get there? You know, and that person in the third section is generally an antagonist who is Uh, repulsive and dislikable in a lot of them that really you catch up with the bad guys in them and sort of get a glimpse into the the bad guyliness of them the 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 weakness and weaseliness the lying and uh, duplicitousness the selfishness the hot-headedness all the things you don't like about parker the human reasons for wanting to screw him over or do the job, greed or lust or simple ego and narcissism, all of these things that Parker is lacking, right? that don't drive him to do any of this. Practicality drives him to do it, not emotion, right? And that sets you against that character. You have the third section, and then at the end of the third section, you catch up with the cliffhanger of part two for the fourth section. You know that it's essentially like you jump back to Parker and you catch up to the cliffhanger in some capacity. And yes. that's the way they're all structured or not. They're all, I keep saying they're all a lot, a lot of them are structured, you know, certainly uh,
0: these early ones, yeah, are structured.
1: Like I would like say that. up, uh, up all the way through, um, at least, um, at least, um, up through rare coin score, they're structured that way, <laughs> that structured that way, like mourner score jugger seventh handle, uh, are all structured that way. Rare coin score, I don't think does the jump, Back in time, Green Eagle score does, Black Eye score does, Sour Lemon score does. I think you have to get all the way up to the thirteenth book, Deadly Edge, and then followed by Slayground, where he drops that format meaningfully. That I've just, yeah. at, you know, yeah. so it's you know it's it's a good ten books out of the first fourteen that are. Yeah. Almost exactly what I've described. Mm -hmm. Uh, We should mention that the book series, it has a a 16, it's the first 16 books, uh, Hunter through Butcher's Moon. The first three, Hunter, uh, Man with the Getaway Face and the Outfit form a sort of loose trilogy. And then the last three, um, Slayground, Ground, Plunder Squad and Butcher's Moon also form a sort of loose trilogy and they both reflect on each other. It's sort of like a book in trilogy Um, and then there's a big break in the series the last one butcher's moon is 1974 then in 1997 he comes back and does another um, how many books is it eight books or so something like that
0: yes it is eight books
1: yeah and those are all slightly different they don't follow the the formula uh, like that uh, as frequently and they're all they're not bad Um, this is probably not the place to explore it they're like good but they don't feel like essential parker there's like some flavor that's just barely missing from most of them and it to me it's really like you have the original 16 and those are the parker books and then you have some really good supplemental material that's fun to uh, read
0: yeah we disagree on that i think some of those are actually some of the best ones but we'll we that's way, way that's not <laughs> the right place to talk about it um i will say you know it's notable that this early trilogy, and then the the trilogy at the end of the original run are very similar in their structure, mainly that the second one, the man with the getaway face, and then later Plunder Squad, really work as their own standalone book that's like a connective tissue between these other two. The Hunter and Slayground Ground are both like, this big thing happens that Parker gets involved with, and he has to go up against these guys, and now he's in their sights. And then the third book
1: and they're um, nothing like any of the other books. Slayground and The Hunter are nothing like any of the other right. books. Right. Yeah. Nothing, nothing, nothing.
0: Sorry. And then, the, then The Outfit and uh, Butcher's, Butcher's Moon, moon. are, uh, you know, Parker having to come back and deal with it. Like, take like go, go to war, basically, against yeah. this organization. Butcher's
1: um, Moon is basically The Outfit Part 2. It's so much, similar yeah. to The Outfit. And <laughs> it's like a curtain call where he brings back, like, every single character, most of which he introduced in The Outfit.
0: Right, right. But uh, but it's especially interesting, those middle books, this one uh, and Plunder Squad having like this kind of standalone kind of quality um, that makes it really interesting because like you you don't lose, you, you get uh, the, you know, the big thing, you know, the big kind of threat from the first book is, is prevalent throughout the entire thing. And then it so effortlessly leads to like a new complication that will lead to the events of the next book. Yeah, I think that's just a beautiful structure for those uh, these two trilogies.
1: Yeah, but... it's interesting with the middle book too. I was thinking this is like the opposite of Empire Strikes Back, where you couldn't show that movie on its own; it would make no sense. Yeah. It only exists as a piece of the larger puzzle. Um, this is the opposite those plunder squad and man with the getaway face could just both be their own Parker books. They could come at any point in the series. They could come after green Eagle score. You know, you could just drop them anywhere with very minor changes. It's exactly what you're saying. They're these Mm -hmm. standalone books. And I do think that's very fascinating where it's sort of like, I'm going to have these trilogies. And if I do a Parker trilogy, it's got to have a pure Parker book in the trilogy, almost (laughs) like a mandate for it, you know, like, yeah, we're doing a trilogy there's got to be a real straight up parker book in the middle of it although it's a, it's impossible to imagine that's what he was thinking this early on
0: yeah know? Who, uh, yeah who knows but uh it worked out really well but it's interesting this book has two tragic figures in it right yeah the first one is skim and the one, other one
1: it has one and a fucking loser all right <laughs> yes
0: so skim could be considered a fucking loser or a tragic figure but i think you know skim really works really well in establishing exactly what we were talking about about why you know parker is a more interesting uh character that you want to follow because skim is completely broken at this point he's you know unshaven he's like he can't look up at parker when he's talking he fucking gives away his forwarding address after he leaves the hotel to <laughs> where the heist is going to be for Christ's he's sake
1: so desperate yeah
0: yeah yeah no he's just completely lost it you know if, if he was ever like a criminal mastermind of any kind He's a total loser now, just a complete schlub. And Parker and Handy, when they're kind of talking about, like, should we approach him? Should we tell Skim that she's clearly, that he can't see betrayal right in front of his face with Alma? And Parker's thought is like, he wouldn't believe us. He's he's that far gone. You know, he's that far in her clutches that, like, even if we tried, he told him straight up, this is a double heist. This is exactly how she's going to do it it wouldn't matter because he would uh he would uh, not he would reject it you know he would still go along with it so i i kind of think of skim like you know god poor skim <laughs> you know just like that he is so far gone and that parker knows you know this so is not funny. a guy i can work with yeah. except that you know he's on he's he's in front of it you know he can he's the one who can like figure out what the double cross is show handy what it's going to be and, you know, be in front of it. And then, Hey, we only have to split it two ways. My reaction
1: to skim is the skims of the world deserve what they get. You know what I mean? That like, (laughs) that those people, there's, there's something that I find so contemptible about that character. Um, And not just because he endangers Parker and endangers handy, and is teamed up with someone who's obviously going to be a problem and is leading her to her death too he should understand that that alma is going to is in over her head and if he cares about her he should nip this in the bud you know and that just that kind of guy he's he's the most contemptible character in the book to me even more so than alma alma is just like a regular greedy person you know he's like he's genuinely pathetic and a loser and is just uh, just I, I do when he when he gets his in such a pathetic way and we should mention we talk about all the b- books in depth everything we talk about in depth here we're going to be full spoilers talk about every single aspect of this book so read it if you don't want anything spoiled i i do have a like good when it, you know when it, when it's revealed him dead in the back of the car with the paring knife it's just like Uh, you know, somebody that I have no sympathy for. Whereas Stubbs, I was very surprised reading at this time. Stubbs, who was the chauffeur of the doctor, who after the doctor who's done the facial surgery is killed, Stubbs, it's one of three people who must've done it. And he's going to go get revenge for the doctor, you know, cause he warned them all before he dropped them off after the surgery. If anything happens to the doc, I'm coming to get you. And Stubbs- Which is, a- is
0: so ridiculous. It's, it reminds me of the beginning of Taken where Liam Neeson is so worried about his daughter going to Europe and she's definitely <laughs> going to get kidnapped and sold into sex slavery- And it happens within five minutes of her (laughs) landing. The fact that Stubbs is like, don't kill the doctor just because he knows your secret. Yeah. And then it happens like the next day. <laughs>
1: yeah. And uh, the doctor is doing these facial surgeries because he used to be a member of the Communist Party and sort of loses his license and gets driven out of business and has to work underground. And Stubbs is a former labor organizer and party organizer who's gone sort of punch drunk from getting hit by too many two by fours of Pinkerton. Too many scab
0: wielded two by fours.
1: Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> And um and so Stubbs is like sort of slow and and foggy brained and, and mush brained and all of that. And and older, too. You get the sense that he's like pushing 60 or something, you know, that he's
0: he says he's like 56 years old in the book. Yeah.
1: yeah. And um and I was surprised reading at this time when it goes to Stubbs section. I was like, Stubbs, here are the book. I'm rooting for Stubbs 1000 <laughs> percent like you're going to get out of this Stubbs. You know, you're smart enough. I even, Stubbs, you're smart enough. You got out. You don't even want Parker. You know, he doesn't even want revenge. You know, like he doesn't even care about Parker. He's going to go find the real killer, you
0: know? He's focused on the straight line, the mission. It
1: is. Everything (laughs) about him. I just found everything about him um, great this time. Like I was like cheering for Stubbs and he is a tragic character in that way because you know, he's just, he's headed into a brick wall. There's no way that this character gets out of a a parker book with a smile and it's funny because the first time i read it i texted you you know about it and you were like it's a very frustrating book i remember being so frustrated with that character the first time i read it and so like oh my god he's gonna ruin everything and i can't believe parker and handy made these stupid mistakes and he got out and all that um but this time i was like team Stubbs." One thousand percent. Go, (laughs) go. It's what I would have retitled the book if I was in charge of releasing it in the UK instead of the steel hit. Um, And yeah. And so when he when he when he dies, when he gets killed by the guy, you know, because he does figure out he does go to investigate who the one of the possible suspects who was a, a a guy who did real estate scams, a con artist who. Had to when the scams fell apart because he was mainly scamming GIs and post in Florida and post-World War II. And when that falls apart, he has to go live in Buenos Aires. After a while in Buenos Aires, he's sick of rich of living down there rich and comes to the doctor, get his face changed so he can move back to New York and live in the States. And then he starts getting paranoid that the doctor is the only person in the world who knows who he is. So he goes and kills the doctor. And then Stubbs hunts him down. And just like Parker's worried about Stubbs is too old and mush-brained. And gets killed by this, uh, by this real estate agent, uh, this phony con man realtor who is living in a fancy house in New York, you know? And uh and it is a tragic end. And that guy's another character where so quickly um he was it is it Charles Wells? Is that the name of the guy? Charles
0: Wells is the name he's living under now. His real name is C. Frederick Wallerbow.
1: Sweet, so, yeah. So Charles Wells, again, in three sentences. Westlake has you hating him. You know what I mean? It's another thing where he's just so quickly to draw up a sort of moral compass within an amoral world or an immoral world that it's kind of amazing that it's like that guy's a bad guy and you want to see him get his. And the way he does it uh, to distinguish between um, Parker and Stubbs and the Doctor, who's not exactly a likable guy. The doctor checks Parker's mail, steams it open. You know, he's not exactly a trustworthy doctor. I don't know what Joe Shear is doing recommending this doctor, but I know <laughs> that I, I, you know, I hope nothing bad befalls Joe Shear in a later book. It's also fun <laughs> to read this book and know all of the names will mean something later in later books, like Joe Shear and the guys they talk about pulling jobs with him and Handy McKay that these guys are going to show up in later books and yeah, um, this
0: is where that starts where they were yeah. characters. Yeah. Get introduced.
1: Yeah. Um, but it is, um, it, cause Joe Shear is the, if I'm alluding to it, but Joe Shear is one of the most important characters in the jugger in the fifth book in the series. He's, he's the, the locus of that book. And, um, and
0: yeah, I mean, part of the, part of the frustration of this book is yeah. that you're constantly thinking like, Parker, kill Stubbs, (laughs) go and kill the nurse and her her two guys who are with her, you know, and that would clear everything up like that, you know, and and no one would know what your new face looks like. You couldn't possibly be blackmailed. And you're constantly wondering, like, why doesn't he just do that? And the whole reason is that Parker knows he doesn't kill without reason. Someone who kills without reason is this guy, Wells, who, you know, goes over shoots the doctor and figures he's scot-free and it's like but you left so many things behind the nurse knows who you are yeah Their steps is going to be coming after you you know he's not a criminal he's not a smart professional criminal the way that parker is
1: yeah and that killing people puts you on the road to the electric chair you know that once you start killing too much that it, once you start using i forget what the phrasing is killing as a solution to problems it becomes an easy solution to too many problems And I think that that's part of what defines the characters. it's not even a moral act. It's again, it's an act of self-preservation, but it is a kind of moral compass within this uh, immoral space, you know? And um, that's what's interesting about it. And it does make you like Parker, that he's not just gonna shoot people in the head and be done with it and be some magic guy who can get away with committing a a million murders. One of the things that I really like about this book as well as the heist is such small scale, especially knowing how grandiose they get. When I first read it, like I said on the Hunter episode, I read The Hunter and I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is one of my new favorite books. And then I read Men with the Getaway Face and I'm like, wow, this is even better. And then I read The Outfit and I was like, wow, this is even better. And then I read The Mourner and I was like, you know what? This is the best one. And then I read <laughs> The Jugger and I was like, wow, this is even better. All up until you hit that stretch of the Rare Coin Score, Green Eagle Score, the score. You know, where it's just it's plateau's
0: of, just a little bit.
1: Yeah, plateau's a lot, a lot, a lot. And yeah. those and I love those books, but it's a plateau, there's no question, you know. But this one going back and seeing how modest the heist is and how modest its intentions are compared to where it where it goes, it's almost it's almost like adorable that they're just robbing an armored car. <laughs> you know, yeah, what I-
0: and it takes three minutes, you know. It's a very well planned heist and it's executed perfectly um yeah no one gets killed really it would have worked out just great without the complications involved
1: well skim and alma get killed and i love how quickly that's dispatched with because the whole book it feels like it's leading up to okay the big complication is going to be alma and skim that's what parker's really focused on and worried about and it feels like it's leading up to like the mayhem when the double cross happens but no they handle it in two seconds. It's no problem. Everything about their plan is correct. They set them up. They set a trap. They get them. It all works great. And that's something I appreciate about it. It's Me a great too. narrative yeah. of light of hand where it's like, no, that's not even, that's done midway through the second section of the book.
0: you got in front of it. This is not going to be the seventh where, you know, there's uh, <laughs> one little complication that's just a dumb stroke of luck, you know, bad timing that screws the whole thing up. Yeah. And I appreciate like, that as well. Yeah. It's, exactly. uh, it's fun. It's funny too, because it makes me think about like, Westlake is not afraid to give Parker flaws that make you kind of yell at the page a little bit. Like the very first chapter, you know, it's like he's left all his money with this doctor who's like, he doesn't know it all. He's knocked out getting plastic surgery. Like right off the bat, you're like, why are you doing that Parker? That's a terrible idea. You yeah. know, he's, he's not without his flaws, but at the same time, Uh, he's someone who just knows his shit when he goes and picks up the truck and knows like everything that's wrong with the truck and why it's not, you know, why he can't just drive away with it. He's not going to get fleeced by these guys who are selling him this broken down truck. He's, you know, saying, no, you got to fix the radio. You got to do this. You know, you got to put oil in it and everything like that. He's, he knows he's, he's a criminal who not only knows, you know, how to, you know, how to do pull off a perfect heist, but also how, to, to you know, all these little supplemental things that he has to be in charge of to get, to make the highest work. He's just somebody who's on top of his things. He uses the Jersey mud to obscure the license plate, you know? He has all these kind of <clears throat> just old methods, and even, and even even that when he gets, you know, approached by the cop on the uh, side of the road, you're like, Parker, you screwed up again. Like, why are you sitting there on the side of the road? Clearly, some yeah. cop is going to stop and get in your business. Um, but I think that these are just kind of circumstances that he has to deal with as it goes along.
1: Yeah, and I do. And again, it's what you're you're saying with the truck. I think what makes this character appealing is that be knowledgeable, don't be pushed around, don't push people around and be a bully. He's always avoiding confrontation. There's always lines about like, you know, arguments are for chumps kind of thing, you know, and throughout the books or Parker said nothing. And I do think that there's something, there's some kind of masculine ideal in know your shit, don't get pushed around by anybody don't push anybody around I think that that's a really something that's that's for men very hard to resist in that kind of character because it seems like a bar for masculinity that you yourself would want to meet that every man would want to meet there's no man that's like I don't really like being knowledgeable about anything and I'm okay with being pushed around and I like being a bully like all three of those things are like just straight to like you suck town for any of those you know um and that's yeah. all three skim is all three no he's not he doesn't call <laughs> me anybody he just gets pushed around
0: but, i would uh, just say the line the line about skim that made me feel the sympathy for him and they thought that he's a tragic figure the line that wesley uses is skim lived in places where broken things were patched with masking tape
1: <laughs> i know but that made me like hate him because that's always the fear is like and i thought about when my um window screen was ripped this summer and i put tape on it until i had a chance to replace it and i was like ah, <laughs> that was that was a real low point in my life having like four months where there was masking tape on my screen window and i didn't get it replaced parker wouldn't have let that happen he would have replaced that screen in a matter of minutes
0: um, yeah, and, and the truck is like held together with masking tape literally <laughs> and parker's like "It's not, it's not acceptable you know that's the yeah. difference between these two characters
1: yeah and doesn't doesn't get smooth talked by that guy doesn't get bullied by him doesn't get deceived doesn't take too much advantage either it's sort of there's some level of fair play to everything parker does even when it's murder it's sort of you know the murder of alma that's fair play like she brought that on herself like their plan is not to kill her if she's not going to cross him you know like that's not their plan there's a kind of fair play to everything he does and the fair play, the definition of fair play in an, in an immoral, dangerous world is just different than the definition of fair play than, you know, at, you know, Wednesday Bible study down at the Baptist church. You know, it's just it's <laughs> just a different uh, kind of thing in that way. What did you think of Stubbs? I've been here singing the praises of Stubbs. I did not get the sense that you liked Stubbs the way I did.
0: Well, I still still feel that same frustration that he shows up and that he has to be put on ice, and that he just won't listen. I mean, he and May, the nurse over in Nebraska, the fact that Parker just has to explain things again and again and again to these people, being like, I don't have any problem with you guys, but you're in my way. You're in my way. I'm trying to get something done. You are fucking up my shit. I just need you to listen to me and just work with me here, and none of them will. I I mean, I love the line. I, I love the whole bit with Stubbs, the third act, where he's uh, going around New York, not knowing how to look somebody up, you know, going to various apartments, trying to find wells in Manhattan first, and then in Brooklyn. And of course, then we see the difference when Parker comes into town and finds him in like an hour, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> knows exactly how to do it.
1: I love uh, the but, moment when he's marking Grand Central on the map. Because he's worried about forgetting where it is. So he kneels down on the sidewalk to mark it with the ballpoint pen. And the woman walks by him startled and then sees what he's doing and smiles. And I'm like, that's actually one of the most New York moments I've ever heard described. Absolutely. The entire scene is like, actually what New York is, as opposed to there's, New York is on film and in novels so many times. And that detail is actually what it is.
0: That's great um but yeah i I love that you know i love that little section where you know after he's escaped i I mean you really feel for him obviously when it gets into his mindset when he's in the fruit cellar in the dark and you know he's just going slowly insane and even so much so that after two weeks of being in there he can't wait he can't wait he knows it's just gonna be like another day or two before they let him out but he that is too long he needs to escape as soon as possible and sympathetic handy mckay gives him a flashlight and that's what helps him get out somebody actually feeling, but that moment where he sees Parker and realizes Parker's not cruel to him. He doesn't, he's not malicious towards him. He's just completely indifferent yeah. you know, is a good defining moment for Parker where it's like, like you said, Parker's not a bully. He's not, he has no ill intentions toward anybody. It's just like you're in his way. You're fucking things up. He needs you out of his way. That's what he's, that's why he's doing this to you. <laughs> and he doesn't care about your comfort he doesn't care if you're going to like slowly lose your mind like you got in his way and now you got it he's got to do this to get you out of it that's it's all methodical for him but i mm-hmm. definitely feel for him when uh he's after he escapes and has that uh start, checks into the motel and spends you know three days basically uh completely dehydrated and uh and you know suffering some kind of ptsd from being in the the fruit cellar for so long
1: yeah, just complete exhaustion and vitamin deficiency and all that. Yeah. But he also treats par- people in a way that's very similar to how Parker treats people to the point, gives them the money that they are deserve to solve the problems, doesn't listen to any bad advice follows the advice he has to you know it's a very he's actually very especially because we see Parker early in the novel stopping off in motels and taking these little trips so we see how Parker treats motel owners and and local doctors and nurses and stuff like that you know sort of local service people and and it's a very Parker-esque you know he has a, a sort of directness to him that is a funny reflection of Parker it's like Parker if you remove the brains from him, it's sort of the same sort of moral compass and same in the same way. Who's yeah, your? There's that great of, line. Oh, even,
0: sorry. No, there's that, there's that great line. Even with half a brain, an important failure can affect a man. Yeah, that's
1: <laughs> true. I know that. <laughs> that
0: sets him on that. Yeah, sets him on that. That that does the desperate need to complete his mission. And uh, the final irony too that it's Parker calling Wells ahead of time to find out if he's there. That screw Stubbs. Because <laughs> yeah. then Wells is ready for him.
1: Yeah. And that Parker gets gets Stubbs killed ultimately. Um, <laughs> that's one thing too, is well prepared and uh, competent and knowledgeable as Parker is, he, he things are constantly not going his way and he's constantly screwing stuff up. Let me ask you though, before we get off Stubbs, who's your casting for Stubbs?
0: Who do you Oh I didn't think too much about Stubbs, you know? I immediately thought um oh, James Remar, like it broken James Remar for Skim.
1: <laughs> oh see i was picturing um uh oh god the guy who's actually in uh the split i was picturing james whitmore
0: for skim oh whitmore would be a good choice i was too. picturing
1: that and for stubs william Diemarest. one and only william Demarest. come on <laughs> you're not telling me he couldn't have played a great stubs he'd be
0: good he'd be good or uh
1: you know that kind of thing
0: yeah the guy who plays Luca Brasi in The Godfather would be a good choice. <laughs> yeah, like some gorilla guy, you know.
1: I um, my favorite thing in the uh, the stub section, um, there's this bit where he's sort of reflecting on the past for a little bit and trying to figure out what to do, um, and it's like,
0: it's where he's like, like thinking about how more simple things were working with for the yeah, party. It's like yeah,
1: something out of a Kundera book. I'll read the whole thing which is thinking, struggling for an answer. Stubbs remembered the old days when sometimes a situation like this would come up. You'd go into a city and there was a man you were looking for and you had to find. He was with you or against you or you needed him one way or another. But then there had been the party and the local contacts, always the local contacts, either party people or sympathizers, and you could go to them and tell the problem to them. They knew the local situation. They had an in here or an in there and they could find your man for you but there wasn't any party anymore. And anyway, this situation didn't have anything to do with the party. Stubbs rubbed his head and remembered the days in the party, the good times when thoughts slid through his head like they were on wheels, and when he knew the questions and knew the answers. He didn't know now what he thought of the party, whether he thought what happened to him had been worth it or not, because he never really thought of the party at all, but only of people. He remembered faces from that time, and frozen moments of important strikes, like the moment when the deputy had driven his car over the little girl. That had been good because it had solidified the workers and made the strike hard as steel, until some damn fool had killed a foreman over a personal grudge, and then predictably the workers had become afraid and the strike had fizzled out. It was strange in a way that now that it was only people he remembered. At the time he had never thought about people at all, but only of issues of theories and dogmas and the masses, and now that it was all over and half his brain had been lost in the fight, he never thought of the issues at all. Like that paragraph is like something out of fucking book of laughter and forgetting. Oh, it's, incredible.
0: Yeah.
1: it's so incredible that, and that's, that's what I was thinking. Watch reading at this time is like, what do I actually think of Westlake as a writer? Like he's, he's great. And I love these books and as much as the reputation of pulp work has been rescued and elevated i i don't think of him on the level of tolstoy or kundera or marquez or whoever might i think the absolute genius writers are but he'll have sections like that um where you realize his insights are as strong as anybody's you know and i and i was sort of thinking about this, where he's both resembles Dashiell Hammett and Ed McBain, but I do think he's different than them. And I, and it's not that like, oh, he's capable of more. There's just something inside of him that's very, very different than other genre writers, even the ones I uh, think of as being really good, other crime genre writers. And it comes out in weird ways, like the Grofeld series, um or or some of the Dortmunder novels but especially the axe you know what I mean the axe is one that I feel like is Westlake most himself in some fundamental way but like what do you what do you think of him as a writer do you think I'm being unfair to say oh he's a genre writer and not and not a Tolstoy or do you think that like what do you think of what what I'm saying about this because he's somebody that I always want that where I love his work and I want to um praise his work and have people read his work. and I love reading his work while showing respect to some art is better than other art. you know what I mean and and showing to respect to like this is this is not Herman Brock. this is not the man without qualities. You know what I mean?, and, and I feel like it's disrespectful to those achievements in art to say a man with a goodaway face is as good as, you know. Turgenev's Mumu, you know what I mean? Like, like it feels strange in some way. What do you think of what I'm saying?
0: I agree with you. I think Westlake would agree with you. I think he yeah. knew his field, and I think that he stayed within those boundaries of that field. He is just—he's a phenomenal writer. <laughs> At yeah. the same time, he's a phenomenal storyteller. That's
1: the thing, absolutely. But go yeah, ahead. and
0: he—and in this book, in particular, because every time I think of the hunter, uh, I think like you know, I like the hunter, but it's like it doesn't have great Westlake characters and this is where in the Parker series there start being great Westlake characters not just the recurring characters of Handy McKay and Joe Shear, who we'll meet more later but like uh Skim and Stubbs and uh and Wells for his brief amount of time and Alma and Dr. Adler are all very interesting very well thought out characters with characteristics that pay off later in the in the book where you think um that's that's justified that's how they would react in that situation that's a mistake that they would make because these are things that Westlake thinks about and things uh you know this is a tight tight book uh that just uh that just is is well thought it's like the heist in the book itself it's like just you know very 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 easily uh very brilliantly put together and executed and I think that that you know, defines his work. And, and I and I think that you know when you're that good at doing a book like this, you keep doing it. And that's where he was kind of staying in that field. When you think about something like the axe, though, he can pull off something like the axe or the hook uh, or even Brothers Keeper, something that you know has bigger ideas and bigger like idea, uh, bigger concepts of you know the world.
1: He well, not feeling like, characters. okay, guys, this is my serious book. This is Sylvia and Bruno. I'm going to leave behind what's great about me. They don't feel like that. They no, not
0: at it. all. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we're totally in agreement on that.
1: It's also funny, you mentioning characters, somebody that I think is an obvious comp, if you haven't read Westlake, is Elmore Leonard. But Westlake never falls in love with the colorfulness of his characters the way Leonard does. You know what yeah. I mean? Leonard sometimes loves the 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 color that he's thought of for the character and splashes it on so liberally that that they become cartoon characters and almost comedic creations in serious stories and in fact that's I think that's probably the common complaint about Leonard right is that that a lot of these characters are are almost cartoons in some way that that He's always risking spilling over into self-parody with his work. Westlake is not more serious than Leonard. You know, they both have an inherent sense of humor and irony to their work, you know, even in the even as brutal as the Parker books get. But I think he doesn't fall in love with the colorfulness. You know, like if Elmore Leonard writes Skim, Skim has, you know, five pages more dialogue, you know, and, and leans into what that guy is an Alma too, that they just become bigger things. And we're told more about their tics and specifically about the things they have masking tape together. And we hear their argument in the car, you know, and that mm-hmm. kind of thing that I think, and it's all a little funnier and a little broader than Westlake would ever do with it. You know?
0: That sounds right. I, I have not read nearly as much Elmore Leonard as I have Westlake. Yeah, but but I've but I've I've failed to read him. I mean, that's the thing is like I've read what I've read, just didn't appeal to me the way that Westlake does, and so I I think it's definitely something uh, along those lines. And I'll also compare him, you know, to Williford, who would you know kind of come into the Elmore Leonard zone much later in his uh, writing career, but uh, killed it in the way that you know Leonard I don't think ever did.
1: Yeah, and Williford I think is different. I think Williford is if not Tolstoy, he's Dostoevsky. You know what I mean? I do think I put Williford in the category with Jim Thompson and Patricia Highsmith of like,
0: yeah,
1: these guys really are aspiring naturally, not with contempt, but just who they are as artists to leave genre behind. Like it's hard for me to believe Patricia Highsmith even thought of herself as a mystery writer, you know, think sure. she didn't write mysteries for one, but as a crime writer, uh, in in that way. Um, the same thing with Williford, although Williford is Williford and Westlake obviously are similar and write in a similar style and the virtues of their work, I think are very, very similar in a lot of ways, but I think Williford is naturally uh, after something bigger philosophically that that um and not in a forced way not in a pretentious way he's not michael chabin or some shit he's (laughs) he's after something in a very natural way that's sort of bigger than a rip roaring story and i think westlake especially with the parker books is just like let her rip you know what i mean like sit down everybody like i'm about to let her rip and you go right on man this is going to be fucking great
0: you know well i think yeah i mean i think Williford tapped into like, you know, the vein of human darkness in his books yeah. in a way that Westlake never would. You know, Westlake likes people too much, likes human beings too much and yeah. enjoys their foibles. Even writing as Richard Stark, he just enjoys like the human comedy way too much, which is a funny thing to say. Since this book ends with Parker decapitating a guy and bringing his head all the way to Nebraska.
1: That's the big moment that's like, Parker would not do that. The decapitation. <laughs> right? Like, that's so not Parker. To bring a head with him to prove that the guy... What is he trying to prove? That the guy <laughs> is dead? That he, that he
0: has him? some sudden, like, that respect for Stubbs faith. that he would want to, yeah. like, fulfill Stubbs's, uh promise that, you know, if anyone killed the doctor, he would take his face back so you <laughs> say well i'll do that
1: why does he suddenly care about what stumps yeah it's very you i wouldn't have thought of it but ec is perfect it is a weird like wait that's the punchline to this book and then like the book is over it's done a sentence a half later like there's not and then Parker stretched out and headed back to, you know, the hotel and looked at it. Like, <laughs> he passes off the head. It's so easy comics. it's so and, easy.
0: and after all this talk, too, about how, like, he won't kill without reason. He's not going <laughs> to just kill these guys to solve his problem. It's like there's a huge deal made about how, like, four dudes see him at this bar when he's asking directions to get <laughs> to the guy's house. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, really, Parker? You want to go and decapitate the guy yeah, and like, leave? Like, like
1: you're definitely you know, going to get identified. Got in his driveway is is one story. Real estate magnate decapitated, head missing, is an entirely different <laughs> national <laughs> news story, Parker. Yeah. You know, and also when it's been through the Monday. who stubs his
0: body lying somewhere on the grounds. I mean, they'll be in Nebraska in a day or two. No question
1: the The thing is is also because Wesley goes through the minutia. the The minutia of this book is how does Stubbs find a hotel? Well, he knows that they're near train stations, so he follows the train tracks. It's that kind of minutia. What does Parker do with this money? Well, he opens a bank account here and puts a couple. It just goes through in detail. The, like you're saying with the truck, the truck does not have enough regulation lights on it. So before he buys it, he makes them add the it go. He uses and because the radiator is not working, he's got to top it off when he's outside of, you know, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Right. Like all of this kind of minutiae. And it jumps over all that with the head. So you're like, so what did he fucking do? You're thinking about that with like, so he drags it into the living room and cuts it off with what? with a (laughs) hackathon with a kitchen knife he leaves the bloody body he washes it off in the sink he puts it in a typewriter case like what did parker actually fucking do because the book is so about the minutiae that it makes you (laughs) consider like the actual act of what he did there's no sort of uh uh and sort of you know ellipses in the story when it comes to the doing of the crime so the idea that like we're not going to think about where this head came from and got brought with him there you know
0: yeah like it's a not important detail for there's, some reason it's so like much- he's it's like he said he's <laughs> still he's still clearly trying to form the park parker character at this point it, it's most reflected in the ending where he does this and and right before he does this he leaves the guy unconscious and goes in and checks the house to make sure no one is there, comes back and the guy is inching towards the gun. He left the gun there?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, it is, it is. There's like a missing section that's that's Parker starring in Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia.
0: (laughs) How much of this is like like a publisher being like, you gotta throw like a decapitation in there or something. You
1: gotta throw like, what's the twist at the end? It's like the twist is the outfit knows he's, out and he's, you know, got to figure out what to do about the outfit. Um, And it's also clearly a lead up, you know, the end is really like, I got to put a squeeze on the outfit and make sure that they don't want to come after me anymore, because it financially doesn't make sense. So it really is leading into the, the other one, whatever his process for writing the books is it's clearly, okay, we're going to write at least this third one about this on here. It's not just, well, what's the next one? And at a certain point, you know, I would say after the Jugger, they do start to feel like, well, what's the next one? Well, what's the next one? And sort of ambling along in that, right? Like, we'll just keep writing more Parker stories until they stop selling, you know, kind of feel to them. Yeah. Um, and you're right. There's a few other things that, that he does that do not feel super Parker-ish in the book, Uh, but I would say it is interesting because more than The Hunter, The Hunter does not feel like the same character at all. The Hunter just feels like there's this great book called The Hunter that has nothing to do with Parker except that it sets up all of this narrative stuff that the book contends with for the rest of the series, you know, Um, whereas this one really does feel like, okay, and here's Parker. And like I said, 87.4% of the way there. You know, like it's really, really close.
0: Yeah. It's going to be. Well, the last thing I want to mention before we get into our dessert pairings is something that I discovered earlier this year. This is the only film of the first three that has not been adapted into a movie, or has it? (laughs) I found (laughs) this weird movie, this poster for a movie called Una Cara Para Pascopar. Escopar, right? It's supposedly a 1963, I think Mexican film starring Alita Valley and Eduardo Noriga. And I've seen things claim that it is an adaptation of the man with the getaway face from 1963, the same year that this book would have been published. But there's just and no
1: way. Isn't it there? seems
0: impossible, right? And like it would have uh predated Made in USA, would have made the first Parker uh adaptation. And the poster has a guy all bandaged, bandaged up. But you know that could be just a just a common like plot thing in, in noir, right? That he, you know somebody has gone through like a criminal changes his face could just be a similar. Just could be a similar plot. I've seen just no no evidence of this thing's existence as something that you can actually track down and watch. Yeah. Uh, it's it's credited to two different directors, a Mexican filmmaker named Augustin P. Delgado who made like weird comedies like mexican comedies and then an american actor turned director named robert gordon and it's a strange pairing i don't i don't know what this thing is but it's just so weird that somebody and and we even got the guy who runs the world of parker website to like check into it and his his big uh uh, takeaway was i don't know (laughs) you know like who knows this thing seems like a an anomaly so i it's frustrating. I, 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 I'm 99% sure this thing has nothing to do with the man with the getaway face, but it's just a weird thing. That's just out there on the internet.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. That's, that's funny. It's funny too. Cause you and I would always talk about, there's a, there's an adaptation of one of his books called Mise a Sec, which is an adaptation, French adaptation of the score, the fifth book in the series. And, um, and it's oh, it's so hard to see. And then of course Tony Stella was like, Yeah, that was on TV all the time growing up. I love Misesek. This is a very good one. You need to see this movie, Chris and John. Um, and uh, and no,
0: Tony Stella.
1: <laughs> It's pretty good, right? And uh, and um yeah, and so it's like, oh god damn, how could I not have seen that if it's coming with the because that guy does not does not recommend garbage ever. That guy always knows what what he's talking about so it's it's funny that's still the one i haven't seen i hate to think there's two i haven't seen you know that would yeah that there's two i haven't seen and i have seen slay ground i just hate that thought (laughs) that that i saw the peter coyote slay ground and haven't seen a good one
0: if it really did exist and really was an adaptation of this book it would be a nice little connection because your son is named parker and my daughter's named alita
1: (laughs) yeah that's, that's true um uh yeah do you want to get into dessert pairings i'm very i'm very Go for it iffy on mine i was about this is a good dessert pairing i'm like wait have i paired this before <laughs> with them with a, with a book which is uh john zorn's naked city do you know this album john have i paired it before with something no, you have not so john zorn he's like uh an experimental musician um and he did this album which is partially covers of stuff like the sicilian clan by Ennio Morricone and the batman theme and uh and chinatown goldsmith's chinatown theme and um the original music but he does like jazz noise thrash metal music it's it's like a mixture of sort of like um with a bit of like <laughs> klezmer uh sounds to it but it's like saxophone with thrash metal and then like wall of noise noise sound music and then also covers of like um of 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 crime stuff of crime filmed things and it's and it's a really interesting album and um I think that uh if you don't know john zorn and are a movie fan probably most famously you'd recognize him as the music that comes blaring in in funny games when the credits come up to an- interrupt the classical music and um but zorn this album it's like it's naked city and it's obviously sort of like film noir tinged but like cracking apart brain film noir tinged and i think that um it's a good lead out from man with the getaway face which is so um straightforward of a crime novel that it it's not a deconstruction of it at all and to just sort of remind you um that like the genre is something that people really like to take apart and try and exceed and transcend um and 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 explode and this book doesn't do that you know and think about that um album as a soundtrack to this book is interesting because i think both it would play and would be a really interesting soundtrack to this film but also what this book is not that this book is is sort of admirably within the genre you know that it's not an explosion and deconstruction of it that it's sort of admirably the thing itself and not a reference to the thing itself that makes sense that at all that's
0: great my pick is, uh, again, another half-ass. I'm just going to pick another armored car heist movie. <laughs> Although I would say, you know... But,
1: but to be fair, I originally picked Rafifi, and I was like, I can't just pick a fucking heist movie. Yeah, pick.
0: that's all I thought was, like, just give me a heist movie. That's what I'm going with. Uh, but, you know, uh, as we mentioned, you know, Parker and his gang effortlessly pull off this heist from the outside, which is pretty... Pretty uh, impressive. You know, When it, the whole point of an armored car is you can't get into it. And they managed to solve that problem, uh, you know, just through their street smarts. you got to have a guy on the inside, though, if you're really going to pull off an armored car heist. And uh, that's why I'm going to recommend The Lavender Hill Mob, the Ealing <laughs> uh, Studios comedy with Alec Guinness, where he plays a very Alec Guinness character who, who like, lives a boring life, has a boring job. Uh, that he just runs, you know, every single day is the same. They run together and he just decides and what he does is that he's the guy who, um, uh, you know, counts the money that goes into the armored car and rides along with the armored car and he just decides I'm going to take that money and going to start a new life. Yeah. And so he gets this mob together, this uh, <laughs> this ragtag squad together to to rob this armored car and uh, like all of the Gallicunas Ealing comedies, it is a total delight. It's wonderful. Uh, Has this like uh, kind of interesting sort of like dark comedy, but coupled with like this life affirming sweetness to it uh, has one of my very favorite moments in any movie uh, when they're, uh, you know, running to uh, get the last uh, piece of evidence that could like, you know, put them away. Uh, on the Eiffel Tower and they're like running down the steps and they're just like laughing hysterically because they're living life. They're not, you know, just like doing a nine to five. They're actually going out there and they're living life as much as they're going to get screwed and like end up going to jail because of it. It's a wonderful movie and I love it.
1: Yeah, and I think it's funny that you mentioned that. I wouldn't have thought of it at all, but of all the things we've talked about and when I keep trying to describe like the Westlake magic I think that spiritually, you can feel like <laughs> Lavender Hill Mob is like spiritually aligned with Les Lake as like a person in some way.
0: Absolutely. He's like a,
1: a, a, a charming, good-hearted, positivist of a man. And Lavender Hill Mob, He the books are not like Lavender Hill Mob. But Westlake himself is like Lavender Hill Mob, even the Dortmunder novels, which are sort of like the comedic versions of the Parker books, most famously adapted into the Hot Rock, right? If you know them, they're sort of a more comedic version of, of what Parker does. And even those are not necessarily like the Lavender Hill Mob. His novels are not necessarily like that. Is even as they're funnier. But they're, but But Westlake, the man himself, has the sort of impish charming spirit of the lavender hill mob and i and i do think that that's a perfect um counterintuitive and maybe um oblique pairing that to me feels very very perfect you know what i mean it feels like this is what he's about even if the book is like has a section about like When Parker fucks prostitutes, you got to slap them around or they're bored, you know, kind (laughs) of thing. like these are these are brutal, unpleasant, unpleasant books about unpleasant characters. But he himself is is not. And I think that just comes through in some way in these books is that Westlake himself is not plagued by darkness. He's the guy running down the stairs of the Eiffel Tower laughing because he's getting to live life. You know, I really think that's who Westlake is. And it just comes through somehow in all of his work.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, that's the, that's the connection. And even this book, grim as it is, ends with a decapitation. It's it's so entertaining and fun that you know you're never thinking, oh, this is too bleak, <laughs> this is too much, yeah, for me. You know, even when poor Stubbs is you know lying there on the cot, unable to move, has to hire a nurse to come in and like you know bring him back to health. You know, yeah. like, this is fun. I'm mean, having a good time <laughs> with this book, no question.
1: And they're such a breezy read. They're not short you know they're not like little Simenon-esque 120 page things they're they're real you know the edition i have is 215 pages but like you can read them in a, in a day and a half you can just breeze through them and that's that's a skill that i think is easy to underrate is readability you know mm-hmm. i always say that vitality is a really um underrated uh, talent for a writer to have that sort of vibrancy of of teeming with life and 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 feeling alive. aliveness in a book is something that's easy to underrate. And I think that you know readability is another thing that's really easy to underrate. It's like, oh, there's these cheap novels that are all easy to read and it's like I will tell you they are not. you know what I mean you can. Mm-hmm. You can read Doc Savage novels really quick. I would not say they have a huge level of readability to them, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, although that's not fair. Those books are are very readable. There's probably better examples I can think of in some way, you know, like there, there are a lot of genre novels are sort of crap with crummy writings. Um, Skylark writer. What's that guy's name? Um, uh, the E.E. E. Smith novels. E.E. E. Smith is a oh, right. readable writer. <laughs> you know lensman novels right yeah the lensman novels uh yeah. it's also called the skylark series or maybe those are different series but like those are not readable you know what i mean like right, Gerald right, right. is not a readable writer there are some like <laughs> bad writers out there and uh, and i don't know why i'm shitting on a bunch of writers that are actually good and that i like trying to think of there's there's genuinely bad writers out there but these books are so readable they're just imminently readable, readable readable readable
0: yeah they're great. I love that we're doing this. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. I'll see you again next year for the outfit.
1: I know the outfit's like a big monumental one. I'm sort of like, I feel like this one is also so modest. It felt like, oh, this will be a breeze. I'll just read it again and we'll talk about it and that'll be easy. Outfit feels like, oh, we got some heavy lifting to do. That's that's one of the real keystones to this whole series. That's a that's a big time one. And we're going to have to talk about John Flynn not joe flynn who's a character in this book what did you make of that when reading it this time were you like huh joe flynn
0: that's the reason when i wrote a parker s script i had my character named joe flynn
1: (laughs) it is (laughs) is. from
0: this book but also as an homage to john flynn who made the outfit
1: director of the outfit rolling thunder out for justice one of the true uh is it called page turner is that the name of that book bestseller bestseller um you know, one of the true, true gentlemen of genre filmmaking, true, true underrated geniuses. But um, yeah, John, thanks for doing this. This was a good idea, and we'll uh, we'll talk about outfit uh, next year, twelve months from now. Set your watch.
0: But Set I will. You. But I will read it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>